All right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name's Jay. I'm one of the pastors here. It's nice to see all you folks coming out uh, on God's Day to uh, worship with God's people. In our uh, order of service this morning, I'm supposed to be up here giving a, uh, a membership moment. Um, so here's the thing. I'm going to do this real fast because I feel like God slapped me in the head while we were worshiping and gave me a word for you people that I'm going to tell you. And uh, maybe you heard me lose the melody completely on that last song there. And it was because, literally, I had this jolt in my brain um, that God dropped something on me for you that I'm going to talk to you about in just a second. So, quick membership moment. We've never had membership. We're starting membership. We want people to commit to four things together as a covenant people of God here at Cornerstone. Community, personal intimacy with Christ, usage of their spiritual gifts, and stewardship of their, uh, of their talents, resources, and the things that God gives them. We do not believe that you are a greater part of the body of Christ by signing on a piece of paper. We do not believe that you need that to be a viable part of God's people. We do believe this is about Cornerstone covenanting together around the identity of who Cornerstone is and who God has called us to be. Because I'm telling you folks, we've got some big things to get started on, and we're going to get started in April, which is why we're going to have these mem- covenant membership classes the first few weeks in March, um, because God has some vision and some building and some plans for us to be walking into as the people of God, not just for our church, but regionally as well. And uh, we want to begin to engage you as covenant members in this. We will have other covenant member classes. If for some reason your schedule is just, you know, crazy and you can't make it to one of these, there will be more. You don't got to worry about that. But um, I do strongly encourage you to Think about, pray with God and about um, your part here at Cornerstone and what it means for you to be a member of our body. If you need any clarification on those things, we spent six months talking about this stuff between June and December of last year. It's all online. Um, You can hear, if you listen to anything in October or November, you'll hear a lot about covenant membership, exactly what we think of it theologically and with God in his word. So, moving on to uh, the other thing that... uh, God told me while I was up here playing the piano. Psalm 47, listen to this. Clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with long sounds of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God, he is highly exalted. The word that I heard that God so strongly struck me with was this. You cannot praise me with your mind. You cannot praise me with your mind. You praise God with your heart. You praise God with an overflow of what it is that he has done in your life. A lot of you folks that come to Cornerstone come because of our teaching. You come because something is stirred in the way that we present the word of God and the way that we bring um, uh, scripture. I mean, we just get constant affirmations from you folks about, about 
the, the, the teaching, about the way that we engage God's word. I haven't heard it taught like that before. I haven't seen it visual, like, visualized like that before. I haven't heard this holistic concept of scripture before, these different kinds of ideas. That's great. That's really good. I'm glad that God meets you um, when you come to hear teaching. And uh, I also am really glad that God enlivens his word here. That is a spiritual thing that takes place. It's got very, very, very little to do with anybody that's up here teaching or preaching. And it's got very, very much to do about the presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst. The problem, though, with people that lean toward teaching is they try and make their whole relationship with God based on their mind. And so I feel like God wants to break through. This comes as a direct uh, extension of uh, the teaching that we've been in in 2 Samuel 2, 3, 4, 5, um, particularly this concept of Baal Perazim. Like God wants to break through your mind. God wants more than your head, folks. He wants your heart. And by saying he wants your heart, we tend to think of that narcissistically. We tend to think of that selfishly, like, oh, God loves me so much that he wants me to, to give my heart to him. Man, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that that's bad or anything like that, but that's sort of like, that's the obvious statement of the day. Of course God wants your heart, but God wants your heart. He wants you in every moment of the day engaged with him here as well as here. This is not about one over the other. This is about spirit and truth. And I feel like what God spoke to me while I was up there playing was that we are leaning too much toward truth. And that we are losing our spirit-truth balance, right? And that a lot of folks that come here want all truth. And I'm cool with the worship. I'm cool with what we do there. I I don't mind banners and flags and hands and all of those things. Um, But I think that God desires a spirit and truth component in all of our hearts and lives, where his spirit is overflowing in our hearts with praise, right? Because praise isn't an act of the mind. Praise isn't an act of the mind. Praise is an act of the heart. Praise is an overflow what the Holy Spirit's doing in your life. And so it's easy in your head to get really, really praising. You know what I mean? To get like, to be just confounded with God and, and, and amazed by who he is. But it's so easy to keep that here. God wants it to drop here. He wants it to drop into here. He wants you to feel him with your heart because this is where he will birth more faith in you. Because faith is only an act of the heart. Faith is not an act of the mind which I think, as I've thought about it while well, we were doing announcements, which I, I think is the, the issue, um, is that we don't realize that God wants to birth more faith in us. That any spiritual growth in our life, any spiritual development that we walk in, is because God gives us faith to do so. Deeper faith in God is the only way to grow in a relationship with Christ. Faith is the beginning and end point. Of, an un. To live in unbelief is what the scriptures call the unpardonable sin. Not because God can't forgive something, but because unbelief keeps you cut off from God. And so you die in your unbelief. There can be no pardon given to unbelief. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is is the beginning point with God. But we think that faith is something that we leave behind us. God wants to birth deeper and richer faith in you. Praise is a bridge that can be walked over to deeper faith in Christ. And sometimes it just takes us mind-based people to obey God 
and let it move from here to here and even possibly get emotional or loud or weird. And some of you folks are, are sitting here looking at me going, I would never do that. Then you won't have faith and you won't grow. And that's sad. Let God have you. Let God have you. Justin's going to be teaching us today from 2 Samuel 6. We're going to see David go nuts in this text. When we get there, remember this. Remember about truth moving from head to heart, about the connection that God desires, about head-based people allowing God to have their whole being, maybe becoming someone that they think they would never become. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. We bless you. We thank you for your word to us. We thank you for your, uh, your life in us. We know and believe, God, that because we have been crucified with Christ, we do not live, but it is Christ who lives in us. So, God, make that so. God, bring your life out of us. God, may every word that we say, every thought that we have, the thoughts, motives, and intentions of our heart, the deep, dark places that we keep locked up and sealed and taken away, God, open those places. Let your life flow into them, Jesus. Enliven us by your Spirit. Wake up dry bones. Put them back together. Wake us up, God. Expose our dry bones to the prophecy of your word and spirit that we might know you more deeply, that we might walk in faith. Thank you, God, for your deep, deep love for us. Thank you for the call that we have from you to not just know you, but to know you, to not just know about you, but to experience you. God, draw us more deeply into that experience with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everybody. For those of you who do not know me nor recognize me, I'm Justin. I am a worship architect here at Cornerstone. Every now and then, I get the privilege of preaching the word. Today, our text is going to be 2 Samuel 6, but we're going to be taking um, some some information and some filling in of the story from First Chronicles. Um, so, but before we actually jump into the text, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, something that I want you to have in the back of your mind that's going to play into our whole time here together, is this, uh, this concept, this disease, this condition uh, called face blindness. Okay, it's called uh, face blindness, and you'll see this come up a little bit here and there uh, all throughout the sermon today. And what face blindness is, it's called uh, prosopagnosia, which is from the Greek words face and the, the Greek word not knowing put together. And as you can probably tell, what this has to do with is that it, when somebody has this condition, they can't remember your face. So, so maybe I met you last week at the grocery store and we had this great conversation. Uh, we had this great talk, got to know each other and everything, and then you showed up here on Sunday and I saw you again. If I have this face blindness, I would not have been able probably to recognize you to understand that we had this in-depth conversation just three days ago. It wouldn't have even entered my mind. It would have been like I would have been meeting you for the first time. So um, 60 Minutes did this 
um, this report on face blindness last year, and you can find it on YouTube. You can watch it on YouTube. It's really interesting. And there was a couple of things that were neat about it as far as like the medical condition and how it's semi-new, although it's been around humanity forever. Um, but the really interesting thing about the report is when they tested people that had face blindness. And there's two really sad things that happen in it. First, a, a uh, father was shown a picture of his daughter. Um, and when he was shown that picture, he had no idea who she was. And this kind of, you know, broke his heart once he realized who she was. So in extreme conditions of face blindness, you don't even recognize the face of your child. You don't even recognize the face of your father, of your mother. Again, what they were testing another person. This time, um, this lady was shown her own face in a slideshow. And she was like, who's that? And she, and she was like, mm, I'm not sure. The reporter said, that's, that's you. That's your face there. And she laughed, and she was like, that's not me. I hope that's not me. And then there was just this, like, silence, and she realized it was. And you could see this, like, this solemn um, wash just come over her face as she was dealing with this identity crisis that she didn't even know her own face in, in that. And to me, this is really interesting um, on a spiritual symbolism parallel aspect because you've probably heard me say it before that I think one of the conditions that the church throughout history, including in the Old Testament, has struggled with is that of amnesia. Okay? We don't remember who God is and we don't know who we are in him. And this is something we see over and over again in the Old Testament. Matt, even a couple months ago, had a graph about like the cycle of Israel and uh, how they repent and they remember, but then they forget. There's this amnesia. So this face blindness is a type of amnesia, albeit a more specific type of amnesia to, to some degree. Um, and the, the people that have face blindness don't necessarily choose it, okay? They, maybe there's something that's wrong with their head that they were born with, or maybe they got conked in the head playing football or something like that. That's a little bit different than spiritual amnesia. Because in spiritual amnesia, it's not only this um, unchosen part of being in a fallen, sinful world, but there's also this chosen transgression that we choose in order to forget who God is, in order to not remember the things that he has shown us, in order to kind of uh, put this fantasy into place rather than to look at God for, for who he is, uh, for the reality of, of who he is. And you do this, and I do this, and we constantly forget what God has said and uh, who he is and who we are in him. Now, faces have a lot to do, the faces are very unique, and they have a lot to do with identity, they have a lot to do with character, they have a lot to do with beauty, and they have a lot to do with communications. And they're very intimate. You know, the idea of a face is very intimate. If you're a respectable dude, and you have a relationship with a, a, a lady that's not your wife, and, you know, you're good friends, uh, you're connected, you might go ahead and fist bump or shake hands or give hugs, but you never touch their face, you know? That is intimately and almost sacredly reserved for either between this husband-wife uh, couple or between child and parent. So there is something very intimate in the face as far as identity, beauty, communication, um, um, all of that. And there might be some you know, cultural standards where that's different, where in other cultures and in certain contextual places that there might be this okayness with touching other people's face. But as a whole, especially in our culture, it's not necessarily 
um, something that's just okay to go around and do as you greet one another is kind of slap each other in the face and touch each other. It's kind of this intimate thing that is, that is shared between relationships that are very deep. So again, remember, faces deal with identity, beauty, character, and communication in an intimate way. Keep this in the back of your head. Keep this idea of face blindness. And in listening to what Jay just said, I think how this plays into um, what he was saying is that a lot of times we think we need to remember up here, but maybe we actually need to remember down here, especially when it has to do with areas of identity, with who God is and with who uh, we are in him. So maybe remembering, maybe amnesia is not so much a, um, a condition of the head, but maybe it is actually a condition of the heart that we often mistake for a condition of the head. So uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into our text uh, again, 2 Samuel 6. So pray with me. God, thanks for today. Um, the one thing I ask, God, is that we would be able to, to see you, that you would be able to reveal yourself to um, our, our hearts and our minds today, and that we would be able to get a clearer picture of your face, of your character uh, through this story, um, that we would be able to empathize with uh, the, the characters uh, in this story with David and Uzzah, uh, that we would be able to um, hear in our minds and in our hearts what you're speaking to us today as we honor your word and uh, honor your character, God. So please bless this time. Uh, help me to communicate clearly. Help my mind and my heart to slow down and to listen to you in all things. In your name I pray, amen. Uzzah, Second Samuel 6, 1 through 7. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baalai Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it out to the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down. He struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark. So just a brief summary of the ark. The ark was the beauty and the glory of Israel, according to Scripture. If we remember, it was basically this this gold chest that had two cherubim on the front of it facing each other. Um, it also had uh, four hooks on each side, which there were supposed to be poles put into there for the, the Levites to carry it. Uh, in the ark, there was typically three things. There was the broken tablets from Sinai. There was a jar of manna, and there was also the, uh, the staff of Aaron, which had budded, um, if you remember back to those stories. Um, this was considered, you know, kind of the throne of God where Uh, the cherubim would be his throne and the ark itself would be his footstool. This was a powerhouse of God. This had a lot of power in it. It was to be consoled for wisdom, but it was never to be controlled or manipulated. And if you tried to do that, things went horribly wrong. 
So a brief, a brief uh, overview of where the ark was in Samuel. So in 1 Samuel 3, uh, the ark was in Shiloh, which is, which is up there in the, in the right-hand corner there. This was during the time of Eli's priesthood, Samuel's apprenticeship, if you remember. Uh, 1 Samuel 4, the ark was captured by the Philistines in Ebenezer. The um, Israel thought that they would put it out and hopefully it would defeat their enemy. And what actually ended up happening is that the Philistines uh, kidnapped, stole the ark from the middle of this field in Ebenezer and took it with them in that. 1 Samuel 5, what happens now is that it goes into the land of the Philistines. And in, the, in that time, a lot of stuff breaks out. First, it's put into the house of Dagon, which is a, a, a pagan god. And what ends up happening there the first night after they get there is that the, this big, huge statue is laying face down before the ark. And so they stand everything back up. And then the second time that they come in the next day, this big, huge statue, this idol, is laying face down again, but this time its head and its arms are cut off. So then it keeps rolling around uh, the area of the Philistines, and all kinds of strange things happen. Panic, plague, death. There's tumors that, at wherever the ark goes into the city, there's these tumors or hemorrhoids, as some uh, translations translate it as, that develop on these people. Uh, there's pestilence, there's rats, there's all kinds of stuff that happens. So the Philistines are like, heck with this. And so after seven months, uh, they're going to go ahead and return it. And so they go ahead and bring the ark with this, almost this art project, these images of tumors and rats that they wanted to make to give glory to God, to be like, we know what you did to us through us kidnapping this ark. And so they bring it back to Israel, and they put it here at Beth Shemesh. Israel's excited. The people of Beth Shemesh are excited. They celebrate. They do all these sacrifices. But then they kind of get cocky, and they look inside uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And what ends up happening is that God strikes 70 of them dead. So if you need a visual of that, remember uh, Indiana Jones, um, the first one where the Nazis are all over the place. Not to say Israel's Nazis, obviously. But then they open up the Ark of the Covenant, and when they do that, literally all hell breaks loose, except it's heaven that breaks loose, actually. Um, and so there's 70 people that die in that place right there. Then they take it from there to uh, our current state. Now, this, this Karath Jerim is actually, in our text, referred to as Bali Judah. Same thing, okay? Bali Judah is the same thing as there. There it stays for 20 years. Little speculation as to whether it actually stayed there for that long, or if at one point in Scripture there was this time when Saul asked for it. But it doesn't say anything in Scripture as far as if they actually went to get it. If they did end up getting it, they ended up also returning it back to that place. So it sat there for 20 years. So then David is here, and he decides, you know what, we need to start interacting. Israel starts, needs to start to interact again with the Ark of the Covenant. And so he, he goes to Bali Judah, which would be, say, say Lebanon is Jerusalem. Bali Judah would be somewhere between Belgrove on 934 and Harper's Tavern right there um, that's just a little bit north of there. It's about nine to ten miles away, not that far away. Also realize, though, that, you know, they don't have roads like we have roads. It's also more of a, of a hilly country if you see that. So it's not that far away to go and bring it into the city of Jerusalem. So they decide to do that, and two brothers lead this procession um, where they have uh, Ohio at the, at the front of the cart with the oxen kind of guiding it, and then you have, then you have Uzzah over here to the side um, kind of, you know, there in case something happens. And what ends up happening is that one of the oxen stumbles, Uzzah goes to steady it, and boom, 
God, in his anger, because of Uzzah's error, strikes him dead. So there's all this rejoicing and everything that's happening, and then all of a sudden there's this death. The anger of the Lord kindles, and bam. Everything, as I would guess, went quiet in that. Uzzah's dead. Um, now, when we think about this, we should think about it emotionally. Like this, this almost seems like God has a temper or God's kind of miffed about something. Uzzah was just trying to help. The ark was about to fall over, so he thought. He just wanted to go and steady it. And God, you know, does God have this temper? And he just struck him down for no reason. So I think we should feel like that angst of like what is going on here with Uzzah. David definitely does, as we're going to see, where David is angry and scared and he doesn't know what to do. Um, but we should also remember a couple things. Um, this is almost like an Old Testament mantra here. Um, this is found in Psalm 145, but it's also this combination of different attributes of God's character throughout all of the Old Testament that are kind of put together. You know, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The steadfast love means that he's a, he's, a, he's a covenant keeper, that his character is faithful and dependable in his love. Compassionate, this is the mother side of God, tender, caring, the mother womb side that is a birthing love that comes out of God's character. And then slow to anger. This literally means that his nostrils do not flare too quickly. Like as a bull, you know, you know a bull is mad when the nostrils flare. This literally means his nostrils do not flare too quickly. So if we take this, these characteristics, specifically slow to anger, and put it in our text with Uzzah, what does that leave us with? So if God is slow to anger, and yet it kind of seems like he just went crazy right here and killed Uzzah for no specific reason, we need to slow down, and understand that God's anger here is legit one way or another, even if we don't understand it. So he is slow to anger, and yet his wrath has come here with Uzzah. While his wrath and his anger is legit. He doesn't have a human temper like us. He doesn't fly off the wheel for no reason. Okay? He is slow to anger. So when he gets anger, angry, we should listen. We have to remember that even if we don't quite understand that his judgments are pure. God's judgments are pure. So that's kind of the first interaction we see with the ark and Uzzah. Next in our, in our text, 2 Samuel 6, 8 through 11. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah on this day, to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. For David, this is a worship architect's nightmare. You know, he's, he has this celebration planned to bring the ark from this place that's been resting and basically dormant for 20 years into the city of Jerusalem. He has thousands of people lined up as we're doing this. It's like this worship parade. Um, people are celebrating the Lord. They're dancing all around. And then all of a sudden, God breaks out in his anger. The oxen stumbles and Uzzah is killed. 
That's, that's a bummer for a worship service. I mean, could you imagine if we were at the height of some worship and then for one reason or another, God struck, no offense, Jake, Jake down. And like, you wouldn't know what to do, like what just happened? What just happened? And that's kind of what David feels. I mean, David here is scared. The text says he's scared. He's angry. He doesn't know what to do. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So what does David do? Well, he doesn't continue to bring the ark into Jerusalem. Rather, he puts God to the side, literally. Something happened that David didn't expect. He doesn't know what to do. So he put God to the side. It's like if we were doing this worship parade from, you know, Bethlehem or uh, Belgrove to Lebanon, you know, somewhere along the line, David put the ark in, you know, Cleona somewhere and kept it there to the side for now. So the thing about this is that we all do this one way or another. When God does not act the way we expect him, we shelve him. When something happens that we don't understand, we dismiss him. And it's very easy for us to fantasize about God, for us to create him whom we want to be rather than vice versa. And then once that image that we've created of him doesn't live up to expectation, goodbye. You're not the God that I created. I don't know you. So I'm just going to put you to the side and dismiss you and not interact with you. Um, and usually in this fantasy that we create of God, there's some type of truth in it, but it's, it's, it's a far cry from the reality of, uh, of God's deep uh, beauty, his intense character. And in us living the, fer- the fantasy, we forget the true living God. We don't remember his true face. And it's like we take his true face as far as what we know and we put a mask over him. And that mask tends to look more like us than anything. The characteristics, the identity, that mask tends to look more like our face than look like his face. So David did this. We do this all the time as well. If he doesn't conform to our standards, um, we mindfully or heartfully try to manipulate him or um, mold him into our image. Does that actually happen? No, but in our perception of him, it does. God is not changed by our thoughts of him or anything like that, but in our perception, in our faith, in our seeking out of him, there is a, there is a shift in us. Like I said, we all did this before. One of, uh, or we all do do this, one of the times that was very key in my life where I struggled with this was about 15 years ago. Um, about 15 years ago, I was a God-fearing uh, pagan Christian, I guess you could say. I was kind of a, a pseudo-Christian that uh, went to church with my grandma now and then, knew things, um, the basics, um, wasn't really connected in the heart with her, um, but knew like the standard, whatever you want to say, cliche phrases of Christianity. Well, in 11th grade, my girlfriend died in a car accident. And I remember being on the floor kicking and screaming, like, just going bonkers at that time. And obviously, I was, you know, 16, 17, so I already had identity issues and everything else as an adolescence. But I was going bonkers in my mind, being like, if this Christian God was supposed to be a God who was compassionate and loving, why did he not give me what I wanted? Why did he have to take my girlfriend away? Why did he have to let her die? And this is a valid emotional response, although the question and the way it's asked 
um, is off. I'm not going to get into that. But it was during this time that I actually put God to the side, and I started exploring other places. I started to explore Eastern religions uh, and paganism and Taoism and a whole bunch of other stuff. And in God's grace, though, what actually ended up happening is that this picture of who I thought the Christian God was ended up dying. Luckily enough, it ended up dying. God died in my mind. The Christian God died in my mind. And then somewhere along the line, something happened where God, through the grace of Christ, came to me. And now I was introduced and started to see the real face of God that was defined by him, that was defined by Jesus, and wasn't defined by me. So in all of this pain and everything, I put the old God aside, and we all do this usually at points of some kind of um, hardship, but luckily in God's grace, at least for me, he wasn't done, and in this he spoke to me, and he actually showed me his true face. And, you know, all this is always a process for us, but it was the shift from the God that I made to the God that was actually there. So now, for David, we have to remember the key question for David um, is this, is, you know, he could succeed as a warrior. He had proven himself in battle. But could he prove himself as a king? Could he prove himself, could he, could he be as good of a king as he was as a warrior? And for the most part in David's story, he's doing well. He's staying intimately connected to God. Um, there's a couple areas of sin in his life, typically regarding women and multiple wives. But he's still seeking after God's face. He's still looking for him in his heart. Um, his desires are for God, and, and God is putting his desires in his heart. He's, de- he's constantly inquiring and asking God, you know, what should we do next? What should I do next? And God is continually for David, but the question in this chapter and the chapters to come, God is continually for David. Will David continually be intimately seeking after God's face? Or is there going to be some kind of break? Is there going to be some kind of um, shift in David's heart? And uh, I think this is where we start to see a subtle shift in David's heart and his mind about his mixture of devotion. And we, we want to remember the, the term stealing, pilfering. Remember, pilfering is little by little something is taken away until then you notice and what happened. And I think what's going on here is that David's devotion is being, is being pilfered. Like, it's this small thing that you don't necessarily notice, but then there's these consequences that are like, what, what happened? That, sh- that shouldn't have happened. But is there something in the background, something going on in the heart and the soul of David that's, that's doing that? So to get a little bit more clarification of this, we're going to go over to, to, first, to first Chronicles 13. So listen to the text here. These stories are paralleling. This is the same story as in 2 Samuel, albeit told slightly different, slightly different timeline and such like that. David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as all the priests and Levites in the cities that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. Then let us bring again the ark of God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. And all the assembly agreed to do so. For the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. Now here's the small, subtle shift, I think. Like, take notice to to now David is inquiring not only of God, but also of the people. 
He almost, he almost tags on that last, if the Lord pleases, type of a phrase. You know, if you think, if it seems good to you, and it's from the Lord, our God, let's do this thing. Um, and, and likewise, the people thought it was right in their, in their eyes. I don't necessarily think it was wrong for David to move the ark. There might be something wrong in how David moved the ark that he should have inquired of the Lord about. So just because we do something for God does not mean that we're doing something with God. Okay? Listen to that. Just because we are doing something for God does not mean we are doing it with God. So if I had to guess what was uh, David's um, fantasy that he was starting to develop in his mind, it was like this, this grandfather-itis almost, meaning that uh, the first seven years of David's kingship were really prosperous. He was really getting his own way in the things that were happening. He was really being blessed. Um, uh, we have that he was made king of Israel. He was notarized as that king. Okay, he brought an end to the civil war. He unified the kingdom under him. Big thing. Uh, he defeated the Philistines, the arch enemy of Israel. And he also was able to establish this new capital, Jerusalem, which God gave him, which was named the city of David. So David had a lot of prosperous things happen, even in, the, in these first couple years of his kingship. So maybe he started to think, you know, maybe God's more like a grandfather who, who gives me whatever I want. You know, maybe as long as I'm happy, maybe as long as things are, I'm content that God will just continue to bless me and bless me and bless me. Maybe that's God's main concern, my contentness in that. Um, maybe God is more like a, a grandfather. So I think here there's this subtle shift that ends up being seen in the, in the tragedy of Uzzah where um, David's posture shifts from living in God's heart uh, to doing things, even good things, in his own way. So God's way versus our way, even if those things are good, even if those things seem godly, even if those things seem right. Is David doing those things according to God's rule or according to his own rule in that? So at this point... Um, what I'd like us to do is take a couple minutes and meditate on some scripture. Uh, Naomi, if you can come up. Uh, we do Lectio Divina here um, every now and then where we meditate on scripture. So Naomi is going to take a few minutes and lead us in that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this a couple times through. And what I, I want you to do is um, just really listen and see what God impresses on your spirit from this passage. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, 
Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Continuing with our story. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. So somewhere along the line um, of these three months that, that David shelved God, David remembered his father's face. Somewhere along there, um, he remembered his father's face. He probably heard that the Lord was blessing Obed-Edom right after he killed, um, right after the anger of the Lord broke out against Uzzah. And he was probably like, what, what is going on here? Uzzah's dead, Obed-Edom is being blessed. Did I miss something? Did David miss something? Again, First Chronicles um, helps to fill in the story here. So here in, uh, in this passage of First Chronicles, um, this is David speaking. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So there's two important clarifications in this verse. This you here are the Levites. Uzzah and Ahio were not Levites. They were part of Israel. They were not part of the priesthood. They were never meant to transport the ark. It was the Levites that were to do that. This time, the second time that they go to transport the ark, according to God's rule, this, is, this isn't like some man-made rule that Moses came up with because he was bored. You know, this was from God, how to take care of the sacred object, how to love the Lord your God in this with your strength. Okay? So here the Levites were supposed to be the ones that were supposed to transport it, not just any old Israelite. Obed-Edom was an Israelite, or sorry, was a Levite, and he was blessed because he was taking care of the ark in the proper way. So that's the first thing. The second thing, carry. You, the Levites, did not carry. How did they transport the ark? Do you remember? In a cart, okay? One, don't transport in a cart because, like I said previously, um, the, the ark was built to be carried by the Levites. It had these two long poles on each side with rings, and they were to carry front and back and to transport it. That's how you transport it, not by a cart. What makes the cart thing even worse is that it was the Philistines that came up with that technology. Okay? So the arch enemies of Israel came up with this easier way, this more utilitarian way to transport the ark, and Israel's just like, yeah, you know, that's, uh, that worked a lot easier than uh, this whole, you know, Levite, four or six people carrying it type of a thing. So let's just keep doing what they did, okay? Now, I'm all about re redeeming methods and everything like that, but when God directly tells you something, and you go not only against it, but directly against it, and do what your blasphemous enemy does, especially with sacred things, you, you don't want to do that, 
you don't want to forget what God has commanded you at that time. You don't, that's, like the, that's more than the exact opposite of, of doing what God says almost. So again, just because something is more utilitarian in sacred things, that doesn't mean that you go ahead and do it that way. You listen to God. You listen to his rule. So because the Levites did not carry it, because the first time what ended up happening is that the, just, um, the Israelites carried it, not the Levites, and they carried it in a cart, not as they were supposed to, not as the Levites were supposed to. And this is really interesting language, too. This, this broke out against us. Do you remember back in the passage what, what David named the place where, where Uzzah died? It was Perez Uzzah. If you look at your footnote in your Bible, it says, you know, where the Lord broke out against Uzzah. Where did the Lord break out previously? Against the Philistines. So there's not this, this um, unjust favoritism that's going on here. You know, the Lord broke out against his enemies in 2 Samuel 5. The Lord broke out against his own people in 2 Samuel 6. Remember, his judgments are pure. And God will break through all kinds of stuff in order to be more rightly known. So, <clears throat> God doesn't play sides and he doesn't, he doesn't play sides like that. So again, the question is, are we doing things God's way? Is David doing things God's way? Or is he this slight mixture of, mixture of devotion where he's doing it his own way? So let me rephrase this up here. Because we did things our way rather than God's way, God broke out against us. And David would have known all this. David was a worship leader. Even if he didn't have direct contact with the ark in his previous life, meaning like leading up to that, not like as a cow or a chicken or anything like that. That's not what I'm talking about. Is that in that, he would have known. And even if he didn't think he knew the rule of the Lord, he knew the rule of the Lord. He forgot, or he chose not to remember or he had some kind of fantasy that said that that's not important. Let's do it this way because it's easier to do. It's more utilitarian in that. He forgot what God had already said. And as the leader, death's Uzzah would have fallen on him too. You know what I mean? I think that's why David was angry and scared. Because he not only felt the weight of the whole situation, he commanded it to be moved like that. And as leaders, if you're in any type of leadership here, you should take that to heart. That sometimes you might instruct somebody in something and the, um, the catastrophe that ends up happening based out of your instruction might not actually happen to you. It might happen to them. So take that in consideration with us as well. But then, but then in all of this, um, David, David remembered. Um, David remembered and his posture of spirit changed. And this time... He did it according to the rule of the Lord. You know what else happened this time? In the first time, there was celebration. There was dancing, there was instruments, people going crazy, merrymaking, as some translations say. This time, there was all that. Celebration galore again. What else was there? There was sacrifice. There was reverence. Second Samuel passage, it says that um, after six steps of the Le- that the Levites took, uh, David went ahead and sacrificed. In the First Chronicles passage, it says that once they got to Jerusalem, the Levites sacrificed uh, seven bulls and seven rams, I believe. So here now, at this place, the second time where there's this correction, where there's this remembering of God's face by David, there is celebration. There is continued celebration, just like in the first place, but there's also this deep sense of reverence. And sometimes those are hard to picture together. 
you know, this merrymaking, and then also this, this reverence of sacrifice that is kind of announced to us like we, we don't really get. So there is both celebration this time as well as reverence in here. Remember that. There's celebration and reverence. There's sacrifice that is made here. Now, this, this next thing might be um, a little hard to swallow, but Uzzah's death was God's grace to his people. And, and what I mean by that is that when God broke out against David and his crew, when God burst through in this scene, it's, be- it's because he is a gracious God. Earlier, when I went through that Old Testament mantra, the, you know, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, I didn't mention the word gracious. Obviously, all of those terms are complicated and complex um, as you look at them as a whole in the Old Testament. But this word gracious means that God favors us, which means he likes us, which means he is jealous for us, which means that he is so jealous for us that he will kill us to be with us. That is a main component of that term gracious. You know, the term gracious sometimes is, uh, or grace is sometimes considered, um, you know, grace is something that you get that you don't deserve. That's kind of a, a, a phrase or the way we explain it. So, so what happens here? What do we get that we don't deserve in this? We get a God that is actually God and not a God that is made after our contextualization of him. We get a God that is God, not a God that is made after our image. We get a God that rules and reigns by his standards, not by our standards. And we don't deserve to truly know that because of our, you know, our wretchedness and everything. But, but God deserves to be known by in that. You know, the trueness of who God is, he wants to be known. He desires for all men to be saved, to know who he is, to know eternal life in that. Okay, and we get to reap the benefit of that because God breaks through, bursts through in the scene, and it's his grace that actually ends up uh, so complicatingly intense with Uzzah that to, to all of us, and including David, it corrects David's mind as to who God is, at least, at least in this situation, at least for now. And that is God's graciousness, that he is a jealous God. His name is Jealous. And, <clears throat> excuse me, God is typically jealous about two things. He's jealous about his name, that it be rightly known, and he's jealous for his people's worship. And I think those two things play a big part in this, this death of Uzzah scene. You know, um, he's jealous for his name, and he's jealous, jealous for the people's worship. He wants us to be single-mindedly, heartfeltly towards him alone in our worship, not in an image, not in an idol that has all the bells and whistles that says, this is Yahweh, this is the God of the Old Testament, this is the God of the New Testament, this is Jesus Christ, but it has nothing to do with him because that's not his face. This is a mask that we've put on him rather than the true God because we're defining him rather than being defined by us. And God is jealous for that and about that and he will be known... um, for who he is in his trueness. And, and in this, we can see just how far God will go to be known, how far his jealousy will go. And it will go so far that um, God did not even spare his only begotten perfect son to be known, but he gave him up for us all. Okay. Worship team, you can come back. <clears throat> 
So in all of this, remember, David is remembering who God is, and it's God's grace in this weird, intense situation that's happening that kind of corrects, that helps David's face blindness fall to the side, where David remembers who God is. He remembers his rule. He remembers what God had already said to his people. And more importantly, he's remembering God for who God is, not for who David might be starting to slightly mix in devotion as to who God is, setting up God as who he says he is rather than God as who God says he is in that. So again, there's no limit to how far God will go uh, in this, that, you know, he did not spare his son to be known. You know, through his son, we can know God. Through his son, enter Jesus, who is the word of God, the radiance and glory of God the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If you see Jesus, you see the Father, because God the Son is in God the Father, and God the Father is in God the Son. If you see Jesus, you see God. If you see God the Son, you see God the Father, because they are in one. And luckily we have God the Holy Spirit who is sent outside of us to convict and inside of us to lead and to remind us of this deep truth about who God is as we seek his face, as the the mask is taken off of our perception and God's reality, his trueness is actually revealed because he will not be known for anything less than who he is. So on the back end of our service today for worship, we're going to be celebrating uh, the Lord's Supper. We're going to be celebrating communion. We're going to be uh, reflecting on the, the life, the death, the sacrifice, the resurrection of Christ. And this is a place where celebration and reverence really take hold in a really practical way. There is so much to celebrate in what Christ has done under the Father's will. There is so much to revere in the way he did it in that. So don't take communion lightly today. I mean, we never take it lightly, but think about David's story. Think about the graciousness of God in all this. Think about how he's slow to anger, and, you know, if his, if his wrath does break out, like, there's a reason for it, and it's a good reason. His judgments are pure. He's not throwing a hissy fit. He's not doing it for no reason. He abounds in love. It's hard to justify certain things that we see going on in our life. Um, But in that, God will give us faith to understand and to see that. So today we remember what Jesus said to his disciples then and what he says to his disciples now. That this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is the psalm that David wrote when the ark was delivered to Jerusalem. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. 
O offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord, our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When you were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Say also, save us, O God of our salvation, and gather and deliver us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. Amen. Amen. Bless you, God, with our souls, with our hearts, with our minds, with our spirits, with the whole of who we are. We bless you. We say thank you. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. Thank you that you are a God who is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, rich in steadfast love. What, what other response do we have but to worship you, but to pour ourselves out in praise and honor and glory and majesty for who you are? God, we lift you up. We worship you. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice for us. Thank you for drawing us back to your face today. I speak today in the name of Jesus against facial amnesia of God, that we would not forget the face of our Father, but that, like David says, that we would seek your face. God, burn yourself onto us. God, quicken and enliven and draw our hearts deep to your heart, that we might know you and feel you and be with you, truly united in the nature of Christ.